You can be seated. And what a wonderful God we do have. He is such a neat Lord. You know, prior to Easter, uh, Pastor Matt took us through an in-depth look at our strategic prayer requests. And these are the, the things that we are asking for the Lord to make real in the lives and hearts of our congregation. And so far, we've looked at praying for God to bring about personal revival in our hearts. And we've also looked at praying for God to move in our leaders to be consistently filled with the Holy Spirit and, lead, and to lead according to His agenda and praying for God to bring others to faith through our witness in Christ, and to pray for God to move us sacrificially in order to meet the budget that, and the monthly and minimize the debts that we've incurred on the buildings. And obviously all these prayer requests are very important, and we're asking God fervently for these to occur. But in particular, it's the conviction of the leadership of this church that the strategic prayer request number one if that one is met, then all the other ones will fall into place very easily and very naturally. And it's been wonderful to see the Lord begin to answer that particular strategic prayer request. If you were here on Easter, uh, you heard a couple testimonies, one from Lori Golterra and one from Shana Pardue, as to how the Lord has bring, been bringing about personal revival in their hearts. And I don't know about you, but... To hear those kind of things happen, those things just really thrill my heart to hear those things. And I would urge you two to each and every day ask the Lord, say, Lord, bring about personal revival in my heart. Because that's the heart and soul of what we need to have for the Lord to do in our congregation. And when Pastor Matt preached his sermon titled, Personal Revival in Our Hearts, regarding that strategic prayer request number one, at the end of his sermon, he shared this verse from Isaiah 57, verse 15. He said this, he said, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, but also with the contrite and the lowly in spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. And based on this particular passage, Pastor Matt's final application point was this, is that we must humble ourselves, period. So important. And you see, humility is always the starting point of personal revival in our hearts. God works mightily in humble hearts. And it's imperative that we consider how to cultivate humble hearts within ourselves. And with that in mind, we want to explore more about what God's Word says about humility. And this morning we're going to look at a text from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 4. And the title of today's sermon is Cultivate Humility. And before we dive into the passage, though, uh, I need to issue a disclaimer. And I'm preaching about humility, but... By no means am I humble. I wish I was, but I'm not. And in so many areas, I find, unfortunately, that I'm still as proud as can be. 
And praise God that he is gradually putting to death those areas. But boy, I sure have a long way to go. And I also want to acknowledge and recommend a tremendous book on this subject. It's a book very simply titled Humility, written by C.J. Mahaney. And uh, most of the applications, I'll just tell you now, from at the end of this sermon were derived from this particular book, and it's a really good book. But before we look at Isaiah 66, it's important to understand the background of this particular passage. The prophecies recorded in Isaiah were, were actually recorded between the year about 740 B.C. and about 690 B.C. And the prophet Isaiah prophesied in what's called the southern kingdom of Judah during that time. And Isaiah actually saw the northern kingdom of Israel go into captivity under the Assyrians in about 722 during that time of his ministry. And though Judah was not overrun by the Babylonians for probably another hundred years after Isaiah died, uh, make no mistake, Judah was very wayward. They really were. You see, they went through kind of the motions of all the Jewish, the Jewish religion, but their hearts were just not right. And at the very beginning of Isaiah's ministry, back in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, actually, Isaiah prophesied this about the nation. He said this, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord, and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. And really, not much had changed by the time Isaiah 66 had rolled around uh, many, many years later. And if anything, Judah had actually gone from bad to worse, because at the time when Isaiah 66 was written, the king that was in place was the king Manasseh. And that was Hezekiah's son. You may remember Hezekiah was a good king, right? Well, his son, oh, boy, was he bad. He actually began to institute and re-bring in idolatry into the nation. And he was a very wicked, evil man. And with this in mind, turn to Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 4, and let's start reading this passage together. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Let's stop right there. And the first thing we see in our text today is that is God questioning his people. But notice before God poses the questions to his people that he declares his greatness. And first he brings to the attention of the people his incredible sovereignty. You see, the Lord says, heaven is my throne. And he's using a metaphor to remind the people that he is the king of the heavens. And all the universe was created by him and it all exists and hold together because of him. And as, as, as the king of the universe, everything obeys his every command. And all that the Lord purposes is done. And nothing can thwart his desire. If he desires it to be done, you and I or nothing else is going to stop it. 
And second, the Lord alludes to his omnipotence, the fact that he is all-powerful. In verse 2, he reminds Judah that he made all things. And the Bible tells us that God simply spoke all these things into existence. He simply said, let there be earth, and there was. Bang! Trillions of tons of matter instantly in a second created out of nothing. And there was this incredible earth. And not only did God create the earth and the universe with a word, but because of his infinite wisdom, it was created absolutely perfectly right out of the box. Have any of you guys been following the uh, recent introduction of the new uh, Windows product, Windows Vista? And you guys are laughing because uh, there's been a number of pretty significant bugs in it, and they've had to very quickly issue some patches to keep the thing uh, from, from blowing up altogether. But when God created the heavens and the earth, he got it right the first time. There were no patches that were required, and there were no service packs that had to be issued to get the thing up and working right. You see, when God is, does something, because of his incredible wisdom, it is done perfectly. And also implied in this passage where God speaks to his people, he is implying his omnipresence because he says, I am in the heavens, and I am all present in all of the heavens. And not only that, at the same time, I am completely 100% present on the earth at all times. He's equally present in every place at all times. So with this vision of God's perfections in focus, God asked Judah two questions in verse 1. He says, where is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? Now the interesting thing is that Solomon's temple was alive and well at the time this, these two questions were asked. So the question arises, well, why is the Lord asking Judah these questions when the temple is already built? And commentators are kind of all over the map on this particular question. I'll just tell you that right now. Many think that the Lord's questions were prophetically addressed to the time when uh, Israel actually came back into the land about 200 years after Isaiah. That's when Ezra and Nehemiah led them out of, out of Babylon back into the land. And other commentators think that these questions are being prophetically addressed to Israel in the end times. And the reason why is because this passage is kind of square in the middle of where Isaiah is talking about the millennium. And some think that these questions are just simply being addressed to the Jews of, uh, Jews of Isaiah's day. But the text really... It really doesn't say. It doesn't tell us exactly where they are, so we can't really be sure. But it, it doesn't seem really that coming to a conclusion on that matter is really that important anyway. Such an understanding misses the point, really, of, I think, what the Lord is trying to get across. And the big clue to understanding what the Lord is saying is in the word, but, in the middle of verse 2. The Lord says, but... To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit. See, God is contrasting the attitude of humility with the attitude, the prideful attitude of his people. 
God is asking these rhetorical questions to expose their pride. And thus these questions could really apply to any people of any time. And make no mistake, the Jews of Isaiah's day were very, very proud. They were anything but humble. Again, remember, Solomon's temple was still around, and i got to tell you, it was really something. The nations came from all over to look at this particular thing. And the Jews' attitude of the day was kind of like, you know, hey, look at this magnificent dwelling place that we have made for the Lord. It's quite impressive. Don't you think it's cool, Lord? You know, everyone else thinks it is. You know, we really need a pat on the back, Lord, for this house that we've made for you. They were full of pride in what they had done for the Lord. And not much changed over time either. Because if you look at Matthew 24, verse 1, it records this incident that actually was 700 years later and Jesus is with his disciples. Jesus comes out of the temple and was going away with his disciples. Disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Pretty cool, huh, Jesus? Wow, look at these buildings. Look at these big stones. Look at this cool place that we have built for the Lord. You know, the Lord hates proud people. He really does. And the scripture makes this abundantly clear. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. And in the New Testament, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if you ever want to pick a fight with God and really get your head handed back to you in a hurry, then just be full of pride. Yeah, God will get your attention all right. Just ask Satan. That's what got him thrown out of heaven was pride. He was thrown out and he got a one-way ticket to the lake of fire in a hurry. And a quick point of application before we move on. We need to be really careful, all of us, if we're seeking to do something great for the Lord. You see, He doesn't need us to accomplish anything that He wants to get done. In fact, if you really stop and think about it, He could probably get it done a whole lot better without us. He does not need us. And it's not that there's anything wrong with aspiring to do great things for the Lord. The only problem is, is that it's frighteningly easy for pride to sneak in when we have that. And it's critical that we do everything with an attitude of humble dependence upon the Lord. And the alternative is to end up on the wrong side of a battle with the Lord. And I don't think that's anything that any of us really want. Well, we've looked at how God questioned his people in verse 1 through 2a. Now let's move on and look at how God counsels his people in verse 2b. He says, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And in this verse, God counsels the people of Judah 
about what attitude he wants to see in them in place of that attitude of pride. And again, notice as we talked about previously, that he starts out with the word but. And the Lord is saying that in contrast to the prideful man who thinks that God will be mindful of him for what he does for God, here is the man that truly attracts God's attention. It's the man with a humble and a contrite spirit. Now let's unpack this a bit. Notice that the Lord says, to this one I will look. And the idea here is, is God is expressing that he intently looks with an attitude of pleasure and with a smile on his face at this particular man. This man, this humble man, gets God's affectionate attention every time. And a similar idea is expressed in 2 Chronicles 16.9. It says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And notice in our text that we're looking at that God says, I will look. There's no indecisiveness here at all, nothing. You see, this kind of man or woman, this humble and contrite man or woman, will get God's gaze on him because he looks for those kind of people. So what kind of man or woman surely attracts God's loving gaze? First, a man or a woman who has a humble spirit. And the idea here is a person who is totally dependent on the Lord due to an understanding of his incredible greatness in comparison to our own poorness. And this is why God was declaring to the people of Judah in 1-2 his own greatness. He was trying to develop an attitude of humility within those people as they saw his greatness. And there's nothing in the world that will develop humility more than looking God square in the eye and seeing him as he truly is. And the second characteristic of a man or a woman who attracts God's gaze is someone who is contrite of spirit. And the idea here is literally of a person who is, who is lame or maimed. That's the idea here. In fact, this, this Hebrew word is only used one other place in the Old Testament. It's used in describing, do you remember Mephibosheth? It's easy for me to say. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Mephibosheth, it was, uh, remember David had the good, his good friend Jonathan, right? Well, Mephibosheth was Jonathan's last surviving son. And if you remember what happened there, they were uh, trying to escape Jerusalem, and his Mephibosheth's maid was running out of Israel or out of Jerusalem, and she drops him. Okay, and Mephibosheth becomes essentially a paraplegic, is what he was. He was lame. He was maimed. And this lameness of spirit is a conscious and calculated assessment of one's spiritual condition in relationship to God. And contriteness of spirit that we know, and we know that we're lame when we compare ourselves to the Lord. And the third characteristic of a man or woman who attracts the loving gaze of God is one who trembles at his word. And the idea here is one who shakes out of reverence for the Lord. 
And implied in this is an attitude of obeying everything that the Lord says. And also involved in this is the trembling, seeing God in all of his holiness and his righteousness and his awesome power. It's that kind of an attitude. And overall in this verse, the Lord is counseling his people about what attracts his loving gaze. And what attracts his loving gaze is a humble, contrite, reverent, obedient heart. This attitude is what really grabs his heart. And if we want to see personal revival in our own hearts, if we want to see God's loving gaze shift down onto us, it's critical that we deliberately cultivate this kind of humility. And the Lord will revive our hearts when our hearts are humble and contrite before Him. Personal revival really won't happen without it. No humility, no revival. It's really that simple. And for that reason, at the end of this sermon, we'll discuss some of the ways that we can cultivate humility in our own hearts. So we've looked at God's questions to his people. We've looked at God's counsel to his people. Now let's consider how God warns his people in verses 3 and 4. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. And he who burns incense is like one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in abominations, so I will choose their punishments and I will bring on them what they dread. Because I called, but no one answered. And I spoke and they did not listen. And they did evil in my sight and chose which I did not delight. Notice that the Lord starts out this verse again with the word but. And you see again he's drawing a contrast between the attitude that pleases him in verse 2b, which is humility and contriteness, and an attitude that doesn't please him in verses 3 and 4. And interestingly, the Lord points to four sacrifices, all of which are actually prescribed in the Old Testament for Jews to be able to do. And that is the sacrifice of an ox, the sacrifice of a lamb, a grain offering, and the offering of incense. And they're all commanded in the Old Testament. And you would think that such offerings by his people would be pleasing to the Lord. After all, he commanded them, so why wouldn't they be pleasing to him? But this is not the case, and the Lord makes a series of just horrendous comparisons. He says that those of Isaiah's people who offer these prescribed sacrifices are like the one who murders a man, or who callously kills another animal, or who puts pig's blood on the altar in the temple, or who worships an idol. You can imagine the response of the people of Isaiah's day when they heard this from Isaiah's mouth. They're thinking, what are you talking about, Lord? We're just simply doing what you told us to do. So the Lord tells his people why he views his, these offerings as abominations. And he gives four reasons. 
First, in verse 3, the Lord says that the people of Judah had chosen their own way. You see, they were going through all the religious motions of Judaism, but in the rest of their lives, they were in the driver's seat. They were calling the shots. You see, they didn't seek to subject themselves to the Lord in His loving rulership. And second, in verse 3, God accuses Judah of delighting in their abominations. In other words, they not only practiced sin, but they loved it. They said, yeah, this is good stuff. And third, in verse 4, God accuses Judah of not answering when he is calling and refusing to listen. And the idea is that they deliberately ignored God's voice and chose not to listen to what he was saying. And some of you may have children, and you ever asked your children to do something, and they're sitting there doing whatever, and you know they hear you, but they just kind of keep on doing what they're doing, you know, and it's kind of like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, did I hear a voice? <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, that's what Judah was doing. God was speaking to them, and they were just totally ignoring what he was saying. And fourth, in verse 4, God accuses Judah of deliberately choosing what God hated. See, overall, the people of Judah, they were, these, they were these little angels that came into the sanctuary on Saturday, and they offered their little sacrifices, and they had their little smiles on their faces and their best little behaviors going on. And then during the rest of the week, they lived like the devil, that's what was going on. You see, their faith didn't make it from here to here, and they were living a life as a hypocrite. They were living a double life. And let me ask you a question. What is the root cause of living this kind of double life? What is the root cause of that? What do you guys think? Pride? Exactly. Anything else? Self, self-centered, trying to please self. And the biggie there, though, is pride. Because when we're proud, that is exactly what we're doing, is we're going to seek to live ourselves because we've put ourselves on the throne. And you notice God's warning to his rebellious, prideful people in verse 4. He says, I will choose their punishments and bring on them what they dread. You think God takes it seriously when his people pridefully live double lives? Yeah, he does. He takes that very seriously. And if any of God's people were stubbornly continuing to live in that rebellion, God's word in the Old Testament told them very clearly what was going to happen. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof, will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. And I think a word of application is in order here. You know, if you're a true Christian, and today you find yourself living a double life like the people of Judah, today is the day to stop that. You know, I, I've lived that way in the past, and I'm ashamed to admit that. And it's not only no fun, 
But God will discipline you when you live that way. You see, He loves you too much to allow you to live that way and destroy your own life and also bring shame to His name. And if this is you, humble yourself today. Confess your sin and repent. And if you really want to drive a stake through the heart of that double life, I would urge you to come and talk to one of the pastoral staff or the elders because any of us would love to help you be free for once and for all from that double life. Now we've seen God's attitude towards proud people. We've seen that a humble and contrite heart attracts God's gaze. Now let's consider what application steps we might take to weaken pride and cultivate humility in our own lives. As a starting point, I want to make three suggestions. And for any of you who want to go even further, I would suggest you pick up that book by J.C. Mahaney. He has a number of other really excellent suggestions. But as a start, here are three suggestions. First suggestion is to regularly meditate on God's perfect attributes that were on display at the cross. You see, when we see Jesus' death on the cross, we end up seeing so much of the perfection of God the Father and the perfection of God the Son. And I'd like to ask you, what, what perfect attributes of our God do we see on display at the cross? What perfect attributes do we see? We see his submission, the Jesus' submission to the Father. What else do we see? We see forgiveness. We see God's love which manifests itself in forgiveness towards us through Jesus. What else do we see? We see his love, yes. We see humility. The humility of Christ in submitting to the Father. What are any other things that you can think of that we see? How about God's righteousness and his holy indignation against sin? That's why Jesus went to the cross, because the justice of God had to be paid for on that cross, and we see his righteousness. And we see all those things about Jesus. We see his utter hatred of sin and his holiness. All these things coming together on the cross, we see all those things. And as we meditate on those things, what kind of effect does that have on us? It does. We see all that, the holiness and the, the fearfulness of our God and the wrath of our God poured out on Jesus who took that in our place. How can we not be humble? The very first stanza of that great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, conveys this well. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. You see, contemplation of the cross brings us face to face with the glory and majesty and holiness of the Father and the Son, and it makes us painfully aware of our own pride. And the contemplation of God's greatness 
And our fallenness, as revealed by the cross, will naturally bring humility in our hearts. And the second suggestion to weaken pride and cultivate humility in us is to spend time alone with God each day. You see, there's nothing more effective in cultivating humility in us to spend time in the very presence of that awesome God. And in particular, spend time each day with your Bibles open, meditating on what you learn about Him from the text, and then respond back in prayer and praise of what you see about our great God and His incredible grace revealed to us through the pages of the Scripture and ask Him for the grace to live in a manner worthy of Him each day. And with the proper attitude in place, the very act of disciplining ourselves to spend time in the Lord's presence each day is a declaration of our dependence upon Him and our humility before Him. And the third suggestion to weaken pride and cultivate humility is to begin each day with thankfulness to God. You know, as you wake up each morning, every morning, take a few moments to thank the Lord and be thankful to Him for the day which is coming. And at the end of the day, do the same thing. Make some time before you go to sleep to thank Him for everything that came into your day, whether it be good or bad or whatever. Just thank Him. And in this practice, you are actually being obedient to the Lord. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, in everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You see, pride and thankfulness don't coexist well together. They just don't. Thankfulness breeds humility. And as genuine humility grows in us and the grip of pride is broken on our hearts, God's loving gaze will rest on us. And His presence will become very real to us. And His nearness will bring joy in our hearts. And renewal will bloom among us. And personal revival will be here, right in the midst of us, evident to everyone who is here. Thus, we do well to cultivate humility in our hearts for His glory. Let's close in prayer. Our majestic Lord, birth in us oh, humble and contrite hearts, born out of an accurate vision of your greatness, and Lord, a clear comprehension of our own smallness. Out of these humble hearts, Lord, please create the overwhelming joy of knowing that we are precious in your sight and Cause that joy to overflow into personal revival in our hearts. We ask this so that your greatness would be magnified in us and through us, and so that a lost world around us 
would marvel at a church full of humble, transformed, joyous people and turn to you. We ask this in Jesus' name.